Paul wrote Romans 9 to 11 to answer this question. If Israel is God's people chosen from all the nations of the world. And if they have been given the sonship and the glory and the covenants rich with promise and expectation. And if they are nevertheless unbelieving by and large, having rejected their Messiah and therefore cut off from Christ, has not the word of God fallen? That's a burning question for the Apostle Paul. And he answers it unequivocally in verse 6 of chapter 9. It is not as though the word of God has fallen. And then he begins his explanation. How can it be that most Israelites are unbelieving and cut off from Christ, God's chosen people, and his word of promise not be fallen? Verse 6, second half. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, God's word stands and his purpose is undefeated because it never was his decree that every individual Israelite would be saved. There has been ever since the beginning of the choice of Abraham, a choice of God within Israel. Isaac, not Ishmael. Verses 6 through 9. Jacob, not Esau. Verses 10 through 13. Not all Israel is Israel. Because there is a purpose according to election. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's, here it is, purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of his call. She was told the elder shall serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Not all Israel is Israel because there is a purpose of election within Israel. Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. Why? So that it might be clear to all that the salvation of any is owing to the sovereign call of God, not to any human distinctives at all. Therefore, Paul's confidence that the word of God has not nor ever will fall is based on his confidence in the sovereignty of God to choose whom he wills. You see it plainly in verse 15 where it says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not upon man's will or upon man's exertion, but upon God who has mercy. So how could his word and his purpose ever fall? It doesn't depend on man at all. It depends on his mercy. So the foundation of Paul's confidence in God's word or purpose is that it is a purpose according to election that is achieved through his sovereign call. Now, we have seen much of this in recent days. And this doctrine of God's sovereignty in the salvation of sinners is fraught with danger. Theological dangers, first of all. For example, someone might conclude, well, God is unjust. Now, Paul knows of these theological dangers and he brings them up. For example, here in verse 14, he raises the question, is there then injustice on God's part? And he deals with it. Someone else might draw the error and the conclusion Well, if God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners, I can't be faulted for my unbelief. And Paul raises that in verse 19. Why then does he still find fault who can resist his will? And he deals with that issue. I'm not going to talk about those theological problems this morning. There are a set of psychological dangers that I'm concerned about this morning. Three in particular. Someone might read this chapter, which is the most awesome, stunning statement about God's sovereignty and the salvation of sinners in the whole Bible, and conclude, number one, well, there is no point whatever in feeling any sorrow for the perishing if God chooses whom he will save. Second, someone might conclude there is no point at all in feeling any desire for the conversion of the unbelieving since God is in charge of who will be saved. And third, we may as well give up praying in the face of God's sovereign decrees. Three dangers. Paul knows these dangers too. And he takes the most effective way he could have taken to sweep them from the field and guard us from them. What he does is sandwich this chapter with tears. With his heart. He enfolds it with his heart. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. Look what he says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Why should anybody think he were lying? I got a letter in the mail the other day that said, Paul couldn't feel what he said in verse 2 if what you said is true about chapter 9. Why do you think Paul wrote chapter 9 verse 1? Because he knew that's what people would say. You can't really feel what you say. He swears he feels it. 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then look at the end of the chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. So he begins and he ends with his heart for the lost. Let's take these three psychological or emotional dangers that this chapter holds out. And look at them. Number one, verse two of chapter nine. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It is wrong if you aim to be a biblical Christian, believing all of Scripture and not just pieces of Scripture, to affirm the sovereignty of God and then say, and there's no point in feeling sorrow for the lost. That's wrong. And it's wrong to be brokenhearted for the lost and then to let your heart dictate your doctrine and say, I can't believe that God is sovereign in the salvation of sinners. We'll take Romans 9 out of the Bible. To be a biblical Christian, you must let it fall where it will. God reigns in the salvation of sinners. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anybody saved. And... Paul is brokenhearted, filled with the Spirit of God. Now, somebody might say, no, no, no. He's not filled with the Spirit of God. He's irrational. He's inconsistent. This is kind of a, an unpredictable emotional eruption of this crazy Paul's volcanic heart. That's, that just can't be in view of verse 1, can it? In verse 1, he calls the Holy Spirit to vouch for him. God, you bear witness with my conscience to these people. Is my heart not real? Now, if he calls God Almighty to account for his affection and the authenticity of it, is it not a godly affection? Is it not a spiritual emotion? Is it not an exemplary affection that we should follow? Surely it is. And then look at verse 3. Couldn't ask for a more stunning statement of love for the lost. If there existed a universe, he says, in which I... As a heaven-bound saint indwelt by the Holy Spirit could stand beside a group of people hell-bound in their hardness of heart and unbelief and by choice I could become a hard-hearted, hell-bound sinner worthy of the damnation of God and they could become a Holy Spirit-filled, heaven-bound group. I'll do it! Paul's real. This is real here. 
A universe like that does not exist. That's why he says, I could wish. God didn't set up a universe in which people could be damned for his glory. Thank God. Second, in verse 1 of chapter 10, not only does Paul feel sorrow and anguish at the lostness of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, he desires with all his heart that they would be saved. You see that? My heart's desire and prayer to God is that they might be saved. And the third danger is, of course, that we might stop praying if we believe in the sovereignty of God. And that verse answers that. But that's next week's sermon. Let's just stop this morning and ask this question. Should we have a heart like Paul's heart? Should you sit there this morning and want this heart for yourself? And you know the answer to that. Yes. We should all have a heart like Paul's heart so that with authentic consciences we can say, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that my kinsmen, my mom, my dad, my daughter, my office mates, my roommate, my neighbors would be saved. Everybody in this room knows that's what we ought to have. And so, I want to give four reasons why those who believe in the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners should want that, should have that desire for the conversion of the lost. And then we'll close with some practical suggestions about how to cultivate such a heart. First, the four reasons why a person who believes in the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners should long for the conversion of the lost. Number one, because of Deuteronomy 29.29, which I'll read to you. You don't need to look it up. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The revealed things belong to you, that you may do them with your children. Do you know who, among all of your acquaintances, God will effectually call and justify and glorify? You do not know it, nor will you ever know it before their conversion. It is a secret thing. It belongs to God. And we meddle with the prerogatives of God when we attempt to direct our desires toward the elect. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. What are they? Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This is revealed for us and for our children that we might obey it all our lives. What is revealed 
that we might be good to each other and to all men. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 What is revealed? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life without price. These things are revealed that we might do them with our children. The secret things belong to God. Leave them with God. Second, we should feel desire for the conversion of the perishing because God himself, when he focuses on the perishing of the unbelieving, in and of itself, he takes no pleasure in it. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn and live? Verse 32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord God. Turn and live. Now, if God, in whose sovereign hands hang all the issues of life and death, can view the wicked and the perishing in such a way that he grieves over that, ought not we, who have nothing like his perspective, share the heart of the Apostle Paul and grieve over the lostness of the lost? Third, we should feel desire for the salvation of the unbelieving because they were made in the image of God. And while they live, the potential, as far as you and I are concerned, exists for them to shine like the sun in the glory of the Father. It's a greater tragedy when a human dies without Christ than when a dog dies without Christ. Because the image of God is the potential to shine with the glory of God by faith forever in beauty. And don't you want that for the people you know? Rather than having them become cinders in hell, while they live, it may yet be And how can we not long for it? For the glory of God. And fourth, we should feel a desire for the salvation of the unbelieving because our own salvation was so free and undeserved. Surely, it is unthinkable. Surely, It is unthinkable that you could be dragged from the bottom of the lake, resuscitated at the cost of another person, have the instruments of rescue put in your hands and sit down on the beach and play cards while others drown. That's unthinkable, isn't it? Or do we ever think how we were saved? 
Well, those are my four reasons. I hope they're adequate for your mind. Maybe the Holy Spirit will move it into your heart. Let's close with this. What can we do? If you sit there saying, my God, I want that desire. I don't feel it very often. It's pretty weak when it comes. But I want it. You're right. It should be here. What can I do? That's where we all are. Well, let me mention some things. Number one, never, ever, ever forget that the unbelievers in your circle of acquaintanceship are going to hell if they die without believing. Just don't forget it. Don't let anybody push that out of your mind. This person you like so much, you have a good time talking about the weather and about the twins and about the Vikings and about the stock market. That person you look eyeball to eyeball every day is going to hell if they don't get converted. That's going to change you. That's going to give you a desire for them if the Holy Spirit applies it to your conscience in truth. Ask yourself things like this. Use analogies. Say, if a plague were coming to Minneapolis... And my friend at work didn't get the vaccination. Wouldn't I go up to him at lunchtime and say, Hey, you can still get it today. Why didn't you get the vaccination? Why would you die? What, what, what are you thinking? Wouldn't you ask that? Or, or let yourself ask questions like, You're in heaven, you're at the judgment bar, and this person at work comes to you and the God grants him to ask you one question and he just looks at you and says, why didn't you speak with more seriousness about this issue of eternal life with me? I never knew you took it so seriously. What are you going to say? Second, don't just dwell on that negative thing. You've got to. That's truth. That's awful, but it's there. But dwell on the sufficiency of the cross. Set your mind morning, noon, and night on Christ crucified with grace abounding for the chiefest of sinners, so that anybody who believes all their sins, no matter how rotten they were, can be forgiven. Just look at the blood bubbling out of the fountain, covering every sin of all those who believe in Christ, no matter how bad they were. And just encourage yourself that this person has not committed too many sins to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And it will encourage you. Let your own heart delight in your forgiveness and you'll find yourself commending it to others. Third, some will say, yes, sure. The cross is sufficient to cover the sins of believers. But this person is so hard, so cold, so indifferent, they'll never believe. And you find it hard to sustain the desire year in and year out for that relative. You've prayed so long, you just run out of juice. Look, don't give up. Don't fall into the pessimistic frame that says maybe God's in control of who gets saved. If He wants to save them, let Him save them. Instead, say, my heart's desire, O oh Lord, is that they be saved. And nobody is too hard for you. Conversion is in your hand. Save, O oh God, and believe in His power. To save. John Wesley went to um, a place called Newcastle upon Tyne, May 1742. Listen to what he wrote about these people that he had to preach to. I was surprised. So much drunkenness, 
cursing, swearing, even in the mouths of little children, do I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time. Surely this place is ripe for him who came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I remember when I first read that, I said, he's going to say, surely this place is ripe for the judgment of God. He didn't say it. And God honored John Wesley's hope. He honored his confidence in the power of God. I don't know why that guy wasn't a Calvinist. He knew God could come to Newcastle and change those drunks. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. My chains fell off. That's Calvinism. I just don't understand this guy. No, I don't want you to grow weary in believing God for the power to overcome the hardness of people's hearts. He'll do it. He can do it. Fourth, let your imagination run up the joyful ray into heaven at the celebration, at the conversion of a lost sinner. Imagine the joy you would have in being God's instrument to save a soul. Paul described his converts like this. He said, they are my hope and joy and crown of boasting before the Lord at His coming. And John talked about his converts like this. He said, no greater joy can I have than this than to know that my children follow in the truth. I mean, these men, the joy of their life was to look at the people that God had used them to save. Just imagine him doing that in your life. You know, it is possible. He uses earthen jars like you, me, to do his immaculate work of redemption. Fifth, think about how free your own conversion was. How how great a gift it was. I mean, go back. Maybe you were saved when you were four and it was mom. Or maybe it was a TV program. Maybe it was a Bible. Maybe it was a tract. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe it was an evangelist. Maybe it was a friend. But ask yourself this. Did you deserve that? Really? Can you? Can anybody in this room look back and say, yes, I, I had done all the things that was necessary to fit myself to be a candidate for salvation? You didn't deserve it. There it was. Mom. A Christian Mom. The power of the Holy Spirit through a TV broadcast. The Word all of a sudden coming alive for no apparent reason but grace. Well, if you think about that and let your mind just dwell on how wonderful God was to you, then surely with your basket all full of undeserved bread, you won't look around on people who are starving and say, tough turkey. You just start feeding them. That's the heart of a believer saved by free and sovereign grace. The Bible says, as you have been loved by Christ, so love. And then sixth, there are just two more. Act on whatever little desire you have. 
This may be one of the most important ones. It's been most effective in my life in kindling the desire. Let me describe my struggle and see if it's you. I go to prayer. I say, oh God, would you convert Joe? Work in his life. Draw his attention to you. Convict him of his sin. Help him to see your character is beautiful. Your hope is attractive. Your meaning in life is all sufficient. Open the eyes of Joe. I want him to be saved. I long for his conversion. A little voice says, you do not. You're a hypocrite. You don't care about Joe. I mean, how do you know you're real, John Piper? What do you do at that point? This witness coming against you. You say, I do. Lord, I want Joe saved. I... And then you're unsure and the deceitfulness of the human heart is such that you can't even know as you kneel there what you feel anymore. What do you do? Take the little bit of desire that's left after that attack. And do something with it. Act. Get on the phone to Joe. Write a letter. Make an appointment. Talk to somebody about him. Do something. And you know what happens? Happens again and again in my life. When you've come away from having done a hard thing, the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit. You're real. Yes, you're real. I got on the phone this week, last week, and I knew I had to deal with this man who's in the midst of sin. And I had to confront him with his spiritual condition and plead with him. And I've been putting it off, and I feel so rotten putting it off. I feel unreal as a pastor, unworthy to preach, unworthy to do anything. And so God rose in my prayer last, I forget what day it was, and I got on the phone. And he answered. Answer to prayer. He answered, would you come see me? I'll come to see you. Yes, I'll come. Hang up the phone. What did I feel when I hung up the phone? Real. I'm real. I do care. I'm not going to quit. You had that experience? So my advice is act on the little bit of a little bit of desire you have for that person in your office or that relative. Act on it. Whatever you can do, do. And finally, I close with this admonition. Pray. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 May God cause you to increase and abound in love to one another and to all men. There it is. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 Pray it. For yourself, pray it for Bethlehem right through prayer week. Here we stand on the brink of prayer week. The chain awaits your signature. We'll be here at 7. We'll be here at noon. We'll be here Wednesday night. We'll be here all night Friday night. Would you go for God this week? Would you do something radical? Who knows but that God might leave behind a blessing at Bethlehem that would cause there to be fruit this year like there never has been before. Stand with me for a dedicatory prayer, would you? And I just invite you to be quiet for... 
30 seconds or so while each of us in our own private individual hearts does business with God where he's been touching us in this hour. Let's just pray quietly for a few seconds. Lord, my heart goes out to this people. I love them so much. I want them to experience this desire, for it is victory. It is joy. Christians hate to live defeated lives in their witness. Oh, be pleased, God, for the joy of this people and the glory of your name to give us the heart of the Apostle Paul, whose very heart is a reflection of the dying Christ. Be pleased, I pray, in this week to pour out a spirit of supplication on us like we've never experienced before. And whatever these people can afford to do with their time, may it be radical. May they go beyond anything they've ever dreamed they might do in prayer and in meditation and fasting this week. To you be the glory, Father. To you be the glory our Lord Jesus Christ, and to you be the glory, Holy Spirit, as you work it in our lives. And all the people said, Amen.